Welcome to Culture Matters, my podcast where we dive deep into the many facets of organizational culture. I am your host Subhu Kalpati. I am a talent, leadership and organizational development professional. In this episode, we'll explore the concept of idea flow, why generating more ideas is critical to business success, and how leaders can enable a culture of ideation, experimentation and implementation. My guest today is Jeremy Utley. Jeremy is the director of executive education at Stanford's D School and an adjunct professor at Stanford's School of Engineering. He is the co-host of the popular web series Stanford's Masters of Creativity and the co-author of the book Idea Flow. Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Uh, Jeremy, before we dive in into the conversation, um, I would love to know a little bit about uh, you, and I'm sure my listeners also would love to know a little bit about you and your background. Um, it'll be nice if you could tell us a little bit about your journey. You are, of course, a director of executive education at at the D School at Stanford, and you're also an adjunct professor uh, at Stanford's School of Engineering. You've earned multiple uh, favorite professor distinctions from graduate programs. And um, I don't know if I told you this uh, while we were uh, communicating uh, over email is that um, you know, I, I had run the uh, virtual crash course for design thinking for my students when I was visiting faculty in my alma wow. mater. Um, that was, I think, about 2014 or 16 around that time frame. Uh, so okay. uh, I'm, I'm, I've actually firsthand experienced your class, you and Perry Claban. So it was, it was awesome at so many levels. And my students still talk about it. I met somebody just a couple of months ago, and they remembered the design thinking part of uh, the course. So oh, that's great. That's yeah. great. Yeah, that was a fun. That was a fun course that we put online. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's still there on YouTube, I believe. So I still go back to it every once in a while. Um, mm-hmm. And of course, you've, you've collaborated with so many other, um, you know, stalwarts such as uh, Lacrae, Professor Dan Ariely, and so many others. Uh, and we were just talking about your India Connect, right? So you've you've done so many things. So question is how, you know, looking back, how, how would you connect the dots, uh, Jeremy? How did you get to doing what you're doing uh, as of today? Yeah, I think uh, for me allowing myself to deviate from the path i think is is kind of the 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 broad advice i would give young people there's such a kind of narrow narrowly prescribed path for young people today in terms of you go to this known firm and you do this safe thing mm-hmm. um and there's very little permission to deviate from that path and for me i found the most interesting parts of my career have been when i have deviated and so you know take for example working in India uh, for the, for a summer. It was a very unexpected opportunity. And I was only given that opportunity in part because I had been on the path, so to speak. Mm. But uh, so many new insights and new connections and opportunities emerge But when we are willing to diverge. So for me, in the summer of 2008, working at a startup in Noida called Delight Design that was using design thinking to reinvent life for folks who live off the electrical grid, who are burning kerosene in their homes. For me, it was such an eye-opening experience, not only you know around their particular product and market, but also around the, the strategic value of using a design-driven, a human-centered approach to problem solving. Mm-hmm. And I never would have known that had I not deviated from my established path. You also teach, um, Jeremy, and what is it uh, about teaching that that really excites you, especially teaching the art and science of creativity? It's it's such a niche area. Uh, what is it that you like uh, about about that particular aspect of your profile? Well, it's really, um, <clears throat> you know, every student that I teach, they have this moment where they go, where did that idea come from? Mm. There, There's this 
moment where they realize they're capable of something that they never knew. And that is an electrifying and addicting moment when a student can discover a latent potential inside themselves, which they didn't know was there. And so for me, I really enjoy teaching because it affords me the privilege and the opportunity to interface with people who you could call them primed for a breakthrough. And I like I like working with people who are primed for a breakthrough. Coming to your book, uh, Jeremy, the uh, you know idea flow that you've written with uh, Perry Cleban, uh, I'm curious to know about the title. It it really sticks, idea flow, um, and also the subtitle about how uh, and why creative businesses win. Uh, what was the inspiration behind the title? How did you uh, come across uh, that particular topic? Well, you know, having led executive programs for the last dozen plus years at Stanford we put a lot of material about creativity and innovation and entrepreneurship in front of audiences. And just like, almost like a comedian is kind of gauging laughter to know mm. what's our good material. You know, we're kind of engaging with the audience, you know, where are the gaps in their understanding? Where are the biases that are preventing real breakthroughs from occurring? And time and time again, one of the things that was most surprising that that we, you know, in all of the hundreds of slides worth of material that we share with people, one of the things that was most surprising is the volume of ideas that are necessary to end up breaking through. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of stuff about the design thinking process that's very intuitive, that makes sense to people. You say, you've got to gain empathy for your customers. And they go, absolutely. I believe in empathy. Yeah. You got to rapidly experiment and prototype cheaply and quickly. They go, absolutely. Um, we uh, Oh, interdisciplinary collaboration. You got it, professor, right? But then we say, how many ideas do you think you need? They say 20. We go, no, a lot more. They go, 200. We go, no, a lot more. And they go, 300? We go, no, you need thousands. <laughs> And that that always surprised people to see that research by our colleague, Bob Sutton yeah. at Stanford, that to get a commercial success, you actually need thousands of ideas. And we realized very few people are thinking in terms of a volume or even aware of the number of ideas they're generating and 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 um and creating that what we call idea flow. And so that kind of became the organizing principle of our unique point of view on this challenge, which is fundamentally, you need more ideas. And if you shift your orientation from I need better ideas to I need more ideas, what you realize is the way you interface with your team and the market and your customer and uh, your stakeholders, suppliers, et cetera, really starts to change when you start to think, when you shift the goalpost to think in terms of more. Mm -hmm. And that's where the magic comes from. It's and, and for us, methods beat magic. I mean, I say that's where the magic comes from, but the reality is most people actually think innovation is this kind of mystical thing. And what we know, it's not. It, there's a there's a rigorous practice and approach and a mindset that is a, a way by which one can beat the odds or at least know how to play the odds. You know, nobody goes to a casino thinking um, they're, they're, they're well aware of what the odds are, right? Um, I think with innovation, most people fail because they have no idea that that it's a numbers game, right? And so bringing some of that awareness and mindset and then figuring out how can we actually leverage that, that's, that's really the inspiration for the book. 
Jeremy, yeah, I, I must admit that I did not see it coming when I was reading the book, uh, the idea ratio, as you put it in the book, um, right? A 2000 is to one. I did not see that coming because <laughs> when I got to that to that point, and then of course, the subsequent explanation of the how I think was was really interesting, um, mm. right? How do you get to that uh, 2000 is to one and it and really breaking it down, but we'll get to that. I, I don't want to jump the gun uh, just yet. Uh, one question that I want to ask you, Jeremy, is and you mentioned this in the opening pages of your book, um, is that uh, you know there are some people uh, when you teach and also when you consult who come to you questioning the idea of do we even need creativity or what's the value of creativity, uh, right? So what what is it that you tell them then? I mean, as long as your your current answers suffice, that's fine. I, I mean, the way the world's changing. You look at the pace of technological change, especially now in the age of AI, having the right answer is a it's it's a short-term advantage at best. Mm. And when you think about creativity as a means of generating novel and compelling solutions to problems, you only need creativity if you're facing problems. And if your business isn't facing problems, please let me know. I, I would actually love to know of businesses that are not facing problems because they don't exist. The truth is every business is facing profound, you know, not existential caliber problems. Yeah. And what's needed to break through is confidence and fluency mm -hmm. in the methods that lead to breakthrough results. And that's creativity. Um, if you have a problem, then you need ideas. And if you need ideas, you need to be creative at some level to be able to go and solve them. And as you mentioned in the book, I think the, the complexity of our day-to-day uh, you know, -day lives is only increasing. And also, it's not as easy to innovate as it was maybe uh, you know, a couple of decades ago. So I think that's also a point well made. Um, uh, one other point that I would love to um, you know, talk about, Jeremy, is, and you mentioned it in the, in the book, is that in business creativity is as foundational and practical as as double entry accounting i think that's the point that you make but uh looking back you know when i was uh when i was a student myself many years ago i don't being you know i don't remember being taught creativity as a subject explicitly right uh, even design thinking is fairly new so uh, you know do you think that we need to kind of uh, rework or rethink the way that business schools teach uh, creativity as as a part of the curriculum I don't think business schools teach it as a part of the curriculum. Mm. So when you say, do I think we need to rethink it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> we need a wholesale reinvention, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's there's attention to accounting and to management and to marketing and to even entrepreneurship. But the the question, and, and if, there, if there are considerations made for creativity, it's generally around new products, new services, you know, new taglines, right? But you think about it, someone in finance who's trying to re you know who's trying to improve the expense reimbursement process what do they need mm. they need ideas somebody in hr who's trying to recruit better talent what do they need or they need ideas right someone yeah. in hr who's trying to make a better you know uh, annual review process what do they need they need ideas all of these people are in need of creative ability to generate new ideas so it's not if creativity is ever taught it's always in terms of some new product or service yeah. that's going to be marketed as a standalone thing but the reality is all of us are facing wicked challenges what what do i title this email 
that I'm about to send, you know, but few of us realize that's actually a creative problem. And so if you don't know that you're facing a creative challenge, you don't know to call on your creativity. That's why we say every problem is an idea problem. Mm -hmm. Fundamentally, we're dealing with idea problems. And when you realize that, you become aware of the tools and mindsets that you can bring to bear to actually solve it. You you touched upon the idea ratio, which is uh, 2000 is to one, but what is idea flow, right? So if I were to ask you to define the concept, uh, you already said that every problem is an idea problem, but how would you define idea flow? Very simply, it's a number of novel solutions you or your team or your organization can generate to a problem at, uh, get within a given time. So right. it's ideas over time, very simply. Um, and there are lots of nuances and you can complicate it, but I find that the simpler the definition, generally the better. And so just think in terms of how many ideas can you generate in a given period of time? Mm. And what we know actually empirically is people's creativity doesn't decline over time. It actually increases, which is to say, if you give yourself another five minutes, you might think, oh, I'm out of ideas. No, mm. it's not true. Um, and the question is, how do you? start to cultivate a robust flow of solutions to the problems that you're facing. Um, you also mentioned this other critical concept, especially in an organizational setup, um, right? It, that idea flow requires the presence of psychological safety as, as advocated by Amy Edmondson in Harvard. Um, could you explain why this is so? Why do we? Why is this so critical and crucial um, you know, as, as a cultural element uh, of psychological safety? And how does it play a role in making sure that idea flow becomes a reality in an organization? Yeah, it's it, it's so critical, Sabu, because ideas, going back to the definition of idea flow, ideas over time, it's not, that has no uh, reference to quality. It's not good ideas over time. Mm. It's ideas, period, over time. And so a hundred bad ideas per minute, it, as far as idea flow is concerned, is better than one good idea per minute. Mm. And if I ask you the question, would you rather have one good idea per minute or a hundred bad ideas per minute? I think most people actually would say, I'd rather one. Well, your idea flow is one there, yeah. right? But if you have a hundred bad ideas per minute, those can provoke many, many more good ideas. And so why do I mention that? Because bad ideas are actually essential to good ideas. I would argue you can't come up with a good idea without having bad ideas. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. But most people only want good. Therefore, they have none. And so if you take as a premise, bad ideas are necessary to get to good, which is fundamentally true, then psychological safety in the context of a team, it may be possible to generate bad ideas yourself, right? In which case you kind of need to, you know, remove this self-censor. So yeah. it's a matter of self-censorship, but group censorship is a matter of judgment and criticism and critique and all that stuff, which is really about psychological safety. So when you ask about why is psychological safety important, I would say in the context of a team and a team generating novel solutions to a problem, a team that does not have psychological safety cannot uh, or will not generate bad ideas. Therefore, it cannot generate good ideas. Yeah. And again, it, it's so fundamental. Uh, if I were to reflect back on my work day today, for instance, I was in a meeting and I think we had a grand total of two ideas in a one hour uh, meeting. Uh, right. And that goes back to your point about how quantity is so essential. But um, a follow up question there, um, Jeremy, is that why why do we stop early? Right. Wh what is it that uh, makes us think that, hey, this is good enough and let's now get into the details? Uh, I think there are some ideas you mentioned in the book uh, that will be interesting uh, to know from you. Well, I think part of it 
is that we have this, uh, th- I mean, my f- you have to be a real nerd to have a favorite cognitive bias, <laughs> but I am a real nerd and I do have a favorite cognitive bias. And that is the Einstelling effect. Yeah. And the Einstelling effect is a well-established cognitive bias dating back to the 1940s where Abraham Luchens first identified it with his wife, Edith, and then Carl Dunker validated it in studies. And even more recently at Oxford, it's been uh, again revalidated, but it's basically the Einstelling effect. It's also known as cognitive fixation, but it's a tendency of a human being to fixate upon and settle upon an early plausible seeming solution mm. um, to the neglect of other alternatives, right? And so the way it manifests itself is if you think of a solution to a problem, two things happen, basically. One, you stop trying to think of other solutions. Mm. And two, you become blinded to better solutions. Mm. And so part of the reason that we stop early is we settle. It's called satisficing. There's lots of names for it. But effectively, what happens is we settle. And the truth is actually empirically, there's very little correlation, almost none between when an idea arrives and, and how good it is or how well it suits the problem, which is to say that you're just as likely to generate a much better solution later than you are earlier. And yet most people, the first seemingly plausible solution they think of, they stop the generation process. And the reason we want to stop, besides the Einstelling effect, which I think these are kind of mutually reinforcing biases, is is what we're always seeking is called cognitive closure. Ari okay. Kublowski identified that phenomenon that we're all that the unknown is distressing to us psychologically. Mm. And so what we're always doing is we're always seeking cognitive closure, to resolve things, to settle things. Therefore, so if you take kind of the Einstein effect, meaning the tendency to settle on an early plausible solution and cognitive closure, meaning our distaste for ambiguity and the unknown, when you combine those together, you get a really, really strong individual and team bias to to avoid uh, continuing in a generative space. You also mentioned the point, related point earlier about how we need to kind of suspend judgment, uh, especially when we are in the process of, uh, you know, idea flow, generating those ideas. Uh, and a related point that I also connected with in the book is um, is the process of improv, uh, right? And how uh, suspending judgment and dare to be obvious. I think that's the that's the term that you use. Yeah, uh, yeah. right. It, it can be as mundane as as you want to, but then you never know where, where it's going to lead you. I think that's very powerful. I did improv many years ago. Uh, right, and that that used to be the primary driver of all our sessions, saying, "Please don't try to be funny. Uh, please try to, you know, be in the moment and be, be in the scene that you're trying to be true to the scene." I yeah. think that was the yeah. that is a point that was made, and just that that having that mindset lets you go off, uh, uh, helps you let go of all judgment, uh, and through that you're able to arrive at, um, yeah, you know, a solution over time. You, you're not planning for it, right? So, so well, yeah. it's it's I, just like we say to improvisers, don't try to be funny. Mm. What we what what I say to individuals in a creative pursuit is don't try to be creative. Mm. And there's actual there's incredible relief that comes when you realize it's not my job to be creative. It's our job to be creative. Right. And what it takes for us to be creative is that individuals give up their longing to be the one with the good idea. Just like what it takes for an improv scene to work is for every actor to give up their desire to be the one that delivers the funny line. Similarly, the the way a creative 
moment works for a team is when every individual is is seeking the best interest of the team and willing to to dare to be obvious. And you don't realize in the moment that that probably was the best creative idea. You realize much later when you've done the testing and the experimentation and all of that, right? Just linking right. it back to what yeah, what you were saying earlier. Uh, next question for you, um, Jeremy, is, uh, again, it's related, is that why is picking the right idea so difficult? So let's say we get through this entire process of generating a whole lot of ideas. Uh, what difference does having skin in the game really make? Uh, right? And you, you mentioned a bunch of points in the book. would love to know more about that. It's it's fascinating, actually. What we see is that the teams that are responsible for implementation actually are the least bold in selection. Mm. They're the ones who are conservative. They're the ones thinking about budget and timeline and feasibility. And so they don't end up kind of, uh, they, they don't, they don't, maximize creative potential or innovation potential. And so the way we kind of get around that get around that is we do a couple of things. One, we have cross-functional teams select ideas rather than the team that's just responsible for implementation. Yeah. So have a cross-functional team select ideas. But then the other is we actually leverage what we call selection criteria, multiple different considerations of uh raw materials that we maintain or preserve innovation potential. And I would say the meta point there, I mean, beyond the point about the team that is positioned to perhaps make compromises, the other point, which is actually critical, is um, what we know for sure is that innovation is a low probability effort. And if you talk to a mathematician about how do you deal with a low probability environment, what they would say is you do lots of things, right? So if you have a low probability, so it's, you know, you think about like a baseball player, low, low chance of hitting a home run. They have lots of at bats, right? You think about a venture capitalist, low chance of having a huge return. So you make many investments, right? Well, mm -hmm. similarly with, with design and with innovation, there's a low probability of success with any new idea. So what do you do? Well, one thing that we advocate is you commission a portfolio, Right. So you actually do multiple things. You never just select one thing arbitrarily and go with it. You do multiple things and you see what works. And so going back to selection criteria and going back to the cognitive bias of the team that owns the implementation, one of the ways a manager can help a team kind of get around that is by saying, we know that everything we try is going to have a low probability of success. So let's make sure we try more than one thing. Mm -hmm. So the team that's responsible for implementation, for sure, you can take the low hanging fruit and you can take the easy idea. That's great. But you have to choose other ideas, too. And you have to commission experiments and then compare the outcomes with one another right. it, before we before we make resource allocation decisions in the future. Another point that I would like to you know, kind of reinforce here is is my favorite cognitive bias, which is loss aversion. Uh, I think that mm -hmm. was uh, that's that's also related to the point that you were making is that. You know, people don't. People typically pick the least risky idea because they want to play it safe, especially when they are be uh, they are going to be the ones who are implementing it. So, therefore, allow them to pick some crazy ideas also and let them test it. I think that's the point that you're making. Right, right. Do multiple things. Yeah, yeah. Next question for you. Uh, again, we are in the flow of how this is working out, right? So we've we've kind of looked at multiple ideas. Now we are in the process of shortlisting a few, designing a portfolio of experiments, like you mentioned. But what? What makes for a good experiment, Jeremy? How do you design uh, a good experiment? I'm sure you've seen tons of these. Have there been yeah. any uh, big insights that you've had that you might want to tell us? Yeah, I mean, there, there, are, there are a few. One is 
what are you testing? Mm. <laughs> so this this gets you know back to the scientific method. But if you think you know, if I put phosphorus in this solution, this is going to happen, right? Well, yeah. then you wouldn't use magnesium, right? Because the experiment's about phosphorus. I mean, to be obvious, right? Well, I can't tell you the number of times where a team is trying to do something, but they aren't measuring the thing that they're, I mean, I, I was working with a restaurant the other day. I'm talking to the restaurant. One of the things that they believe is that if they, um, if they use a robot in the restaurant, they can increase table turns and increase the um, availability of servers to help with things. Well, then I look at the data they're measuring, you know what they're measuring? How many miles the robot goes, right. how many hours it's up. There's nothing about table turns in the measurements. There's nothing about, uh, you know, server availability. I go, team, if the, the hypothesis was, if we add a robot, it will increase table turns. Mm. We're not measuring table turns, mm. right? They have all this other interesting data about the robot, but they aren't measuring the thing. So you got to actually say, like, from, from before you get started, what do I think is going to happen? And what am I trying to affect? What is the variable that I'm actually trying to impact with this experiment? Call it the outcome variable. Mm. I'm trying to affect table turns. Great. Then let's make sure we measure before the experiment and then after the experiments and any variation of the experiment table turns right? right so it's very simple so that's one thing but then two when you're running an experiment what is it you know what are you trying to do i think a lot of people are basically trying to figure out can we pull this off can we do it technologically right what we say is that's actually a less important question can we do it is way less important than should we do it Mm. You know, is there a human desirability component? So in the early stages, we would advocate not kind of engineering testing, but actually desirability testing right. and finding ways of learning. Do human beings have the pain that I'm addressing? Right. Do they feel it? Do they respond to it? Do they? And does my idea or my solution solve that pain for them? And so finding ways to, we call it um, maximum believability with minimum investment. Like how do you design a maximally believable offer with a minimum amount of investment mm -hmm. and see if it works? So like canonical example from the book is um, <clears throat> a, a shopping mall yeah. was in the process of learning whether they should put a beer garden on the fourth floor. Yeah. Well, one approach is put the beer garden on the fourth floor and then see if it drives foot traffic to the uh, you know, up to four, right? And so they would spend a few hundred thousand dollars retrofitting the space and then cross their fingers and hope it works. Well, that's that's high believability, but it's also high investment, right? High believability, but low investment is make really good looking signs about the beer garden on the fourth floor before you build it and see, does anybody go up there, right? Yeah. Um, and have, you know, have an associate up there prepared to offer drink discounts for the food court or, you know, give somebody a beer, right? Or whatever it takes, it doesn't matter. But the point is, the big question is whether someone who's aware of the opportunity to go to the fourth floor actually goes up there. Mm. And why spend all the money retrofitting the space if they're not going to go when they become aware that there's an opportunity? And yeah. so, with experiments, what you want to, you don't want to be spending a lot of money. You don't want to be spending a lot of time. You want to be believably offering, and here's the other part, a decision for a human being. Mm -hmm. So in the case of the mall, the human being goes to the fourth floor, mm -hmm. you know, um, and a decision is very useful because 
it humans will tell you one thing. Oh, I love your idea, right? Mm-hmm. Sabu, you're like, oh, what do you think about this? Like this back scratcher. Mm-hmm. Everybody says, oh, that's great. Let me know when it's built, right? Well, then what do you do? Do you go invest in a back scratching business? Or do you say, hey, if you sign up now, I'll put you on the mailing list, right? Does anybody sign up? Yeah. You know, because it costs them nothing, right? Um, does anybody add add their name to the wait list? Does anyone, right? And you, there's so all that say, there are simple decisions you can get people to make, which are higher in credibility than their kind of uh, opinion response to a hypothetical. If I built this, would you like it? No one's going to say no. Mm. Not because they actually like it, but because they don't want to hurt your feelings. Yeah. And so you want to, rather than asking someone for a, a, an opinion, if you put a decision in front of them, you're far more likely to end up with a with a meaningful data. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the term that you use in the book is signal mining. I absolutely love that. Um, where you go and uh, you know scan for real world data to see if people are actually doing the thing that you want them to do. Uh, and then yeah. go and build it. Yeah, uh, I love that. Another related uh, question um, that I want to check on, Jeremy, is, is on, again, it's, it's on culture, which is that, um, you know, you mentioned that behavior proves desirability, right? And I think that's the point that you were also talking about here. But then when the culture doesn't support it, right? When when a creative person goes to his or her manager saying that, hey, I have this great idea, uh, and there are a whole bunch of uh, objections that come, right? And you're you're unable to go and test it. You know for sure that it's a winner. How do you how do you kind of work with that? How do you work in a culture which is not creative by default? What what can one do? Yeah, well, I would say managers are rational, right? And innovation is irrational. And so, what you want to do is you don't want to say, "Hey, I'm kind of thinking about doing this," because then you know people are going to say, "Well, what's the proof it's going to work?" Yeah, you don't have any. Therefore, no, you can't have budget, right? Instead of saying, I'm thinking about doing this, find a way to do it Mm. in a lightweight, experimental, light cost way, and then come to a manager and say, hey, I wanted to show you this data. We tried this and here's how people are responding. You know what a manager is going to say? Why aren't we doing more of that? Yeah. Right. And so don't wait. There's, it's impossible to deductively prove the value of a new idea. And yet managers are deductive rationalists. So you have to give them data. So the, 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 the do not ask for permission to experiment. Mm. You will never be given it, right? Um, but if you believe that there's a meaningful improvement that can be made, try it in a lightweight fashion and then see, you know, my favorite example of this comes from my good friend, Bill Pacheco, when he was at Cybex, he had an idea for a new treadmill that was, um, he felt would be a big innovation. He kind of mocked up, you know, CAD images and things like that mm. and put them to his boss who had a ton of patents in the, um, in the fitness space. And his boss was, you know, emphatic. This is a bad idea. Don't do it. Mm. But Bill, Bill, had, and part of the reason that empathy really matters and part of the reason it's valuable is it puts that fire of innovation in your heart. You know, this is a problem, right? So Bill couldn't just leave it, leave well enough alone because, he really saw that that people were struggling with this issue about safety on the treadmill. And so what Bill did was he kind of made some minor modifications to existing machines inside. And he had a, he had a local hotel gym down the street and he made some minor modifications to these machines. And then he just watched what did people do in the, in the hotel gym, which machine did they go to? 
And something like nine out of 10 people went to the machine that he had modified. Now he didn't tell people, Hey, I've modified this machine. It wasn't, he wasn't affecting the safety of it. It was only kind of a, a superficial change. Um, But he just, then he came back to his boss and said, Hey, we made a minor modification to this machine side by side with our other machine in the gym. We watched people for three days, 30 people came through 27 of them chose the machine with this modification. Mm. Whoa. Now his boss is going, well, wait a minute. Why? Well, we talked to them afterwards. They said that it felt safer, that it looked like it was more stable. Right. And safety is a big deal in the fitness space, right? There's lawsuits all the time. And all of a sudden, whoa, we have a chance to change a, you know, consumer perception because originally it's, well, it's going to add $40 of cost to every build and the margins are already thin, right? We don't want to spend 40 more bucks if we don't have to, but whoa, this is about, this is about changing a consumer perception and now it's worth it. Now the conversation is totally different. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So do it, get the data experiment and then, uh, then go back with the data to be able to uh, prove your point. Otherwise, you, I mean, then you're basically, you know, your hypothesis is busted. So you know what direction to go to if, if it doesn't work either, right? So exactly. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Jeremy, are you game for a quick um, rapid fire round? Absolutely. My pleasure. All right. So we're going to do this in uh, in word association format, uh, which is which comes from improv. So I'm going to shoot a word to you or a phrase, right? And I'm going to do it in rapid succession. Please tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. Um, and we'll go through the motions and maybe we'll revisit a few words or phrases after we're done with the round. Um, does that sound okay? Perfect. Awesome. So first word coming away, creativity. Fun. Innovation. Work. Collaboration. Messy. Tesla. Fast. Pixar. Woody. Bob Sutton. Uh, Research. Creative cultures. Light. Creative leaders. Questions. Reason. Justification. Divergence. Partnership. Meetings. Dread. A hypothesis. Test. All right. You did well. Thanks, Jeremy. <laughs> that was fun. I hope it was fun for you. Uh, sure. Very interesting uh, responses. I. Why did you say messy for collaboration, Jeremy? I'd love to know that. What is messy? I mean, um, the... The challenge with collaboration is people, right? People have different agendas. They have different interests. They have different um, motivations. And so it's, you know, gaining alignment can be challenging and um, it's not straightforward. It's not, and it's not formulaic. You know, human beings are not rational. They are emotional beings with, with, uh, that that are complicated who hardly understand themselves, let alone others. Mm. So pose lots of challenges. Yeah, and and yet collaboration is also so essential to the creative process, um, right? That's the that's the other point. So if I were to ask you a follow up question, how do you then marry the two? How do you make sure that you know we are collaborating well while at the same time making sure that the ideas are flowing? Any thoughts on that? Um, well, I think there's a few things. One is, can we be honest with one another? You know, can we give one another feedback? Right. The another is, um, can we? do we have time to think? Do we have time to 
uh, solve? Do we have time to brainstorm? Mm -hmm. um, another thing is laughter, smiling. Are people are do people enjoy each other? Are people having fun together? Um, creativity is intelligence having fun, as as uh, Einstein said, right? And the you know my friend Brendan Boyle uh, said if he walks by a brainstorm and people aren't laughing, he knows where the problem is, mm. right? And so I think there we have these very rigid definitions, you know, and work is one of them, right? And it's got to be serious, you know, and if you laugh, you probably look over your shoulder, kind yeah. of self-conscious that oh, I hope anybody didn't hear me, right? Yeah. Why? Well, because work's not supposed to be fun. And if it's fun, it's not work, right? Well, that's, that's pretty messed up. I think one way to think like Amy Edmondson, again, one thing she says, which is valuable in regards to this question on collaboration is that that teams with psychological safety have to have shared language yeah um for what we're trying to do what we're trying to accomplish and how we're trying to behave so there are times where um you know for at the d school we say are we focusing or are we flaring mm. right? very simply yeah. are we generating solutions or are we um evaluating options and recognizing that the mindset we bring to each of those moments is different the way i think about um generating and, and who I am when I'm generating is very different than the way I think about evaluating and who I am when I'm evaluating. Yeah. Um, I want to ask a related question there, uh, Jeremy, you, you brought up brainstorming as a point and you go uh, quite a bit of, uh, you know, uh, get into a lot of bit of detail in about, about brainstorming and how it can be done well in the book. Um, right. Something that you get into a lot. Um, any top insights on, you know, what works uh, when it comes to brainstorming? Is it just about, you know, a group coming together? Is it just about, you know, an individual working in his or her desk? Uh, what is it that we have learned about brainstorming that works or doesn't work? Well, the, the simplest thing I would say is don't think about it like an event. Think about it more like it's a series of, of interactions. And so if a brainstorm is a single point in time, I, I can already tell you it's not going to go well, right? Mm -hmm. Um, if a brainstorm, on the other hand, is a series of interactions where folks are given a challenge and they're they're given the opportunity to consider it and they are given time to individually consider it and then they share and they build and they and then they're given time and space before they have to make a decision. You know, we call it an innovation sandwich where yeah. you spend some time considering the problem individually before you share solutions and then you share solutions and build on one another's ideas and then you consider those but importantly you don't make a decision and you have an, a separate meeting where not only do you you know is the expectation set that you can make a decision there but also that there are going to be better ideas that occur to the team between now and then that's a radical um departure from the you know 30 minute brainstorm meeting on the calendar yeah absolutely I love the idea of the of the sandwich method where you do both, right? It's it's not just about uh, meeting as a group, but you also think individually and then come back and meet again. I, I absolutely love that. Um, right. I, I I I really like the chapter uh, that uh, that's titled "Mindful Perspectives" uh, in in the book, um, where you know I think the fundamental question you ask is how do we effectively get divergent ideas on the table, um, mm. both volume and variety, and uh, you make the case for diverse teams, non homogeneous teams. Uh, yes. And how that's that's so important for the ideation process to work well. Could you talk talk, talk a little bit about that point, uh, Jeremy? Why is it that it's so essential, and what value does it add to have uh, non-homogeneous teams work together? 
Right. Well, I mean, if you think about going back to the conversation we had earlier about people being obvious, the value of divergent perspectives is what's obvious to one person isn't obvious to another person, right? Mm -hmm. What's obvious to you and your background and perspective and experience and context is likely wildly creative to me. And what's obvious to me with my background and perspective and experience is likely wildly creative to you, yeah. right? What's now somebody who's just like you, what's obvious to them is probably obvious to you, not so creative, right? So a diverse team, you're, you're just increasing the number of kind of conceptual building blocks or cognitive inputs to the equation, right? And you can, if you think about ideas as combinations of existing knowledge, then the more diverse the, the perspectives uh, that are brought to the ideation table, the more varied the combinations. Um, and you also mentioned uh, a bunch of other, um, you know, tools and techniques in in how uh, organizations can do this, uh, right? And you also make uh, a point about having the space for candor. Uh, it's going back mm. to the point about psychological safety and also having mm. a space for trust. Uh, one example that really stood out for me, and I would love for you to share it with our listeners also, is uh, the dailies meetings that Pixar has, um, right? Could you talk a little bit about that and how that reinforces the point about having the space for candor, being open to feedback and those kinds of things? Yeah, well, dailies, I mean, what what Ed Catmull has really eloquently said, you know, is is that it's a mistake to think that their movies come out fully formed, right? And they're like perfect ideas and the plot is perfect and the dialogue's perfect. They're usually very rough and they're usually, he says, all of our movies suck to begin with. Our job is to take them from suck to not suck, yeah. which if you think about Pixar, you go, no way, they never suck, right? They're always yeah. amazing. Pardon my language. Yeah. I'm making a quote, but the point is he knows Creativity is about iteration and development and and um, and refinement. And what the dailies practice at Pixar is is every day they they different members of the team showcase what they've been working on. And there's a no holds barred kind of feedback session where everyone who's involved with a film and even special guests beyond the group can actually give feedback to the person who is working on a problem. And the goal of each of these daily meetings is to surface problems and address them while there's still plenty of time before, you know, uh, within the production schedule. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it it calls for a special kind of culture to be able to do that. Uh, it's so difficult. It's easy to kind of, you know, talk about it, but I'm sure the the kind of effort that's gone into building that kind of a narrative with tens of directors sitting in a room and people giving you direct feedback on your face. It's not easy, right? Because it, it affects you emotionally. Right. It's your work at the end of the day and you, you have to listen to it <laughs> for probably right. for an hour uh, when everyone's giving you that feedback. I'm just trying to imagine myself in that room. I'm sure it's not easy. Right. No, but you, and I think that's, that's part of the, the kind of the cultural um, acclamation there at Pixar is folks have to become comfortable sharing unfinished work mm. and sharing rough work and getting feedback and 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 giving feedback right it's not a it's not a kind of a normal part of most organizations life we want to preserve something and make it perfect before we ever share it but what yeah. pixar knows is that sharing it is the way to perfect it one other uh, company that comes to mind is Netflix. I think they also have a culture of open feedback and candor pretty much uh, as a part of the DNA of the organization. This came to mind while you were uh, explaining that. Uh, thanks, Jeremy. Um, another chapter that I really liked was um, the uh, the one on creative collisions, uh, right? And how do you encourage creative collisions? Uh, if I were to ask you an open question there, 
uh, Jeremy, for a two-part question, right? So what are creative collisions, first of all, and how can organizations and leaders uh, encourage or have more of those in their teams uh, in the organizations? Well, the, the, the notion behind creative collisions is recognizing that as Arthur Kessler, the Hungarian philosopher said, creativity is the collision of apparently unrelated frames of reference. Mm -hmm. And so creative ideas emerge where in, in unexpected connections. And once you realize that, then you can, you can actually seek out unexpected connections. You know, a really simple way to do it, we call it a wonder wander, is take a problem in mind and walk around the block mm -hmm. asking yourself, you know, how would the, you know, FedEx truck, how would FedEx solve the problem, right? See a playground. How would a kid's playground deal with this problem? You know, then you, you see a coffee shop. What would a barista do or a foot massage or manicure place? How would a manicure artist deal with this problem, right? But in all of those cases, you're basically, you're entertaining the possibility of a rel of relevance with these collisions. Mm -hmm. And many times new ideas come and, and emerge just by getting out of the space and just by entertaining collisions. And there's much more kind of sophisticated methods as well. We talked there about analogous exploration and different things we've done with many organizations. But the but the point behind a creative collision is to recognize that sometimes the solution is not in your head and the and the answer isn't to sit and think harder, but to have an instinct to get up and get out. You know, and Steve Jobs famously, when he was dissatisfied with the design of the early Mac computer, he ran to Macy's and he ran around the aisles of Macy's and he found a Cuisinart food mixer. Yeah. And he bought it and he brought it back to the team. He said, it should look like this. <laughs> and you can imagine a, like an early you know, computer team looking at a food mixture going, what do you mean it should look like that? Right. Mm -hmm. But the point is what I love is, and we all can kind of imagine how the Mac kind of looks like that. Right. But okay. the point is Steve Jobs knew that when you're stuck getting up and getting out and seeking inspiration and fresh input, I don't think he knew that he was looking for the Cuisinart mixer i think he's haunt, he's looking around like what could solve this problem what am i looking for you know okay. and that instinct that instinct to seek out collisions is really one that that you know leaders can certainly cultivate in their team where are we where are we looking for inspiration you know yeah. and i would say most people inspiration isn't even on their radar as a needful practice absolutely i remember uh, reading a blog post that you wrote recently that inspiration should be a discipline right how do you uh, how do you make it a part of your lives? Uh, and I think it yeah. was the the Lecrae article, if I remember correctly, uh, where you mm. mentioned that. I do remember that, and that's so powerful. How do you make sure that it's a part of your daily routine as much as anything yeah. else? Uh, yeah. Right. That's um, that's a great point. Thanks, um, Jeremy. Uh, last couple of questions before I let you go. It's probably a, a two part question, uh, which is that uh, first part of it is uh, what do leaders typically get wrong when it comes to the creative process? Right. What what do they most often get wrong? And what should they be doing instead? Right. So, what what advice would you give them? So, okay, it's great. So, um, one thing is, it's not that leaders get wrong so much as people get wrong, and mm. leaders accept that it they accept this misconception. Leaders are often viewed as the answer person. They've got the answer, right? All we need to do is ask the boss, yeah. right? And leaders know they don't know the answers, but the people think they do, and leaders don't disabuse them of that misconception. They don't say, I don't have the answers. They try to come up with the answer. And so what I say is leaders should be the approach person, not the answer person. Mm. 
Mm. And what they need to do is instead of having the right answer, they need to have a reliable approach by which they might discover the answer or empower others to discover the answer, right? And so that's a matter of, you know, having a process or having a, you know, design driven approach. And one of the simple things a leader can do is request options, mm. you know, so when, when, or, or, or even say, what else are we trying? You know, just, I mean, like I said earlier, where are we looking for inspiration? Yeah. What else are we trying? You know, bring me, you know, Bob McKim, famous Stanford professor, whenever a student wanted feedback, he always said the same thing. You've got to show me at least three. Yeah, I need to see at least three versions. That's the only way I can give you feedback, right? Yeah. Um, and so having that mindset of uh, that's that's about an approach. That's not about an answer. That's about an approach. And having that sense of what I need are options, what I need are inputs, what I need is inspiration, and then I can help kind of shape and guide my team's thinking. Yeah. That's great, Jeremy. I think that's a great note for also uh, for us to also wrap up this conversation. Uh, it's it's been a real pleasure, and it's a wonderful book. Uh, I absolutely loved reading it. I look forward to going back to it now. Now that you've spoken, uh, and I'll I'll go back and revisit some of the concepts that you already uh, spoke about in this conversation. So, Jeremy, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for taking the time, and uh, lovely speaking to you today. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me, Sabu. All the best. I had so many aha moments through this conversation. The people who are responsible for implementing an idea will usually pick the most risk-free solution. Leaders need to facilitate rather than provide solutions to problems. And the best way to pitch an idea in a risk-averse culture is to first test it and show results from a small sample set. Counterintuitive yet extremely useful insights. Until next time, I hope you will embrace the concept of idea flow to help you and your organization generate solutions to all kinds of problems, big and small.